If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? He says that the works of the flesh are obvious, Holy One, but then the Apostle Paul goes ahead and makes a list of them, so maybe they aren't so evident. But we know what Paul says is true. We are all too familiar with many of them. Strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, and things like these. Is Paul writing about us? or them, and suddenly it isn't all that fun to read someone else's mail. Then Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, because the church has always needed reminding. There is an old church camp song for this scripture, complete with hand motions, humor, and good rhyming to help with memorization. The song teases us by saying, the fruit of the spirits, not a banana. But might we be so bold as to suggest that it would be far more convenient if patience came in edible form instead of us having to practice it? But we know it doesn't work that way, Holy One. So help us cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. May we practice love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness so that they become our first instinct. Keep presenting us with opportunities to be generous, faithful, and gentle. We pray in the spirit of our ancestors of faith who were trying as hard as we are to get it right. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from each of the four gospels, or th- uh, sorry, three out of the four gospels. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 32, and Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 19. From the gospel of Mark, he also said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use it for? It is like 
a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. From the Gospel of Matthew, he put, to bef he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and made nests in its branches. And finally, from the Gospel of Luke, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Jesus has been called many names over the centuries. Rabbi, teacher, Lord, Christ, the anointed one. Some of you may have grown up with the hymn, His Name is Wonderful, which uses some creative license. He is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages. Almighty God is he. Yes, Jesus has been called many things. But no one, no one has ever called Jesus a botanist. No one mistakes him for a farmer. The closest anyone comes to thinking that Jesus had any expertise in this area is Mary in the Gospel of John after the crucifixion. Two angels appeared to her as she stood weeping outside the tomb, and then Jesus appeared asking, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to Jesus, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And so obviously, Mary actually didn't think that Jesus was a gardener. It was a case of mistaken identity. Not any, any evidence that Jesus knew anything about growing anything in the dirt. And that is because of this parable. The parable of the mustard seed makes it very clear that Jesus had zero horticultural experience. First of all, mustard seed is not... Contrary to what Jesus states, the smallest of seeds, orchid and cypress seeds, are smaller. Moreover, mustard seeds do not grow into giant trees. The black mustard seed sprouts into a plant that can grow, given perfect agricultural conditions, 8 to 10 feet. And so therefore, scholars frequently presume this is what Jesus was talking about. But to describe it as a tree is very generous. The Salvadora persica, also found in the land of Israel, produces a modest bush growing no more than a foot in height, and interpreters who want to read the Bible as a book about science and agriculture take extra care to bring the parable into conformity with nature. Some 
resort to explanations that limit the comparison base. Mustard seed is the, is the smallest seed that would be planted in particular locations, such as vegetable gardens, or it could be the smallest seed that one would find in the land of Israel. Others play with the grammar. The term used in the parable, traditionally translated as the superlative smallest, maybe really is the comparative smaller. They thus suggest that the parable is not really saying smallest, that it's really a comparison. She, Jesus is comparing seed size. Secondly, as to Jesus' lack of experience, it seems that Jesus isn't quite sure where the mustard seed is planted or should it be planted or really how it gets into the ground at all. He told the parable in various ways, one time with a, in the garden, another time planted in a field, one time with the seed growing into a large vegetable of sorts, and another with the seed growing into a giant tree. I should probably say something in Jesus' defense here, and that is that we really can't know if he really told the parable one way and then the gospel writers sort of, again, took creative license and used the building blocks to construct their own details. But since we can't know what Jesus said exactly, it becomes impossible to determine if those details hold the key to the parable's interpretation. But here's what we do know. We do know that it is very likely that the rabbi Jesus told a parable that involved a small mustard seed, branches, and birds taking shelter. We are mostly familiar with the traditional interpretations of what these three elements are said to represent. Very often the plant that grows from the mustard seed is cast as a weed, something subversive, which is very appealing to this particular congregation especially when preaching against empire or the status quo. But we don't get that from the parable itself. No one plants a weed on purpose or scatters seed in a place that they don't want something to grow unless they are trying to ruin someone else's crop. Dr. Amy Jill Levine points out that since mustard can be planted and since mustard has medicinal benefits, there is no reason to see anything untoward let alone transgressive or impure about the seed in the garden. Had Jesus wished to speak of the seed as something unwanted, which he does in another parable of the weed and the wheat, well, he would have done so. And you remember the parable of the weed and the wheat. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in the, his field, but while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. When asked what they should do, the owner of the land told the workers to leave the weeds to grow along with the wheat until the harvest, lest pulling the weeds would uproot the wheat. All of which is to say, it's unlikely Jesus meant for us to understand the plant that grew from the mustard seed was a weed. 
As for the branches and the birds that shelter there, many have interpreted the parable as a parody of empire. Prophets in the Hebrew Bible often associate birds and trees with fallen empires. Dr. Levine says that Ezekiel, writing in the context of the Babylonian exile, advises us, consider Assyria a cedar of Lebanon with fair branches and forest shade and of great height, its top among the clouds. All the birds of the air made their nests in the branches. Under its branches, all the animals of the field gave birth to their young and in its shade, all great nations lived. But then things take a turn for the cedar of Lebanon. As Ezekiel describes, Assyria fell to Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I gave it into the hands of the prince of the nations. He has dealt with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. So in Jesus' retelling, it is not the cedar of Lebanon, but the tenacious mustard plant that represents the kingdom of heaven. And that interpretation is very appealing in its comparison, but we're not sure that that modern interpretation would have occurred to first century Galileans. Birds nesting in a tree was not a conventional image for empire. Had Ezekiel described his mighty tree, his mighty cedar as a tree, then we might be more confident about a connection, at least with Luke's version of the parable. And had the parable itself mentioned a cedar or noted the destruction of the tree, the connection to empire would have deeper roots, pun intended. So where does that leave us? What, what if a seed is just a seed? What if branches are just branches, birds are just birds? What then can we say about this parable? We know it should challenge us, of course, but the question is, what does this parable challenge? What is certainly clear is that the parable does make a comparison. The small seed creates a home for the birds. But is the lesson here that big outcomes come from small beginnings? That seems not as resisty-ish as we want it to sound. But perhaps that depends on who hears the parable and when they hear it. It seems to me that this is a particularly important moment for us to consider whether or not we take this parable seriously, whether we trust what Jesus says about small things becoming big things to be true. For if we don't, we probably should pack it in. But if we do, then we'll know that this is not a time for despair. This is a time for resolve. 
Last Thursday, the Supreme Court issued a landmark decision saying that there is a constitutional right to carry a handgun in public for self-defense, striking down a New York law that restricted concealed carry. And it will now be far more difficult to defend rules that limit guns in public places. And then on Saturday, President Biden signed into law the first major gun safety legislation passed by Congress in nearly 30 years. It does not do everything we want it to do, but it includes incentives for states to pass red flag laws that allow groups to petition courts to remove weapons from people deemed a threat to themselves or others. It expands an existing law that prevents people convicted of domestic abuse from owning a gun, from just including spouses or former spouses to also including dating partners. It also expands background checks on people between ages of 18 and 21 seeking to buy a gun. It's not everything, but it is a seed. Do we believe it? While the Supreme Court ruled that it can't regulate guns, the next day it ruled that it can regulate the bodies of people who are pregnant, holding that there is no longer a federal constitutional right to an abortion and ultimately the right to privacy, which has served as the basis for other rights like marriage equality and access to birth control. It was certainly not just a ruling on abortion. I got a call from Planned Parenthood just after the decision was released. Could Mayflower offer our sanctuary for the good of the community that night? People were going to need somewhere to go, to grieve, to rage, and to be held in community. So last Friday, the congregation hosted over 500 people between this sanctuary, the Fellowship Hall, and online. We insisted that reproductive justice demands that all people have the right to bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children, and to parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. We insisted that abortion be accessible, affordable, and de-stigmatized, in large part because the treatment for ectopic pregnancy is abortion. The treatment for septic uterus is abortion. The treatment for a miscarriage that your body won't release is abortion. If left untreated, we die, and that is unacceptable. We insisted that we will not give up on creating a world where policies support people's whole lives, including better access to hospitals and clinics and insurance that covers our actual needs. This kind of response from the faith community didn't start with us, though. We, we are branches of a seed planted over 50 years ago. Before the U.S. Supreme Court's historic decision in Roe v. Wade in 1973, a network of clergy emerged to help connect women seeking an abortion with doctors who could safely provide them made up of Protestant ministers, Jewish rabbis, and dissident Catholic nuns and priests, the clergy consultation service announced their services on May 22, 1967, in an article published on the front page of the New York Times. The group of almost 2,000 religious leaders eventually lobbied for the repeal of abortion laws, 
challenged anti-abortion activists, and helped people obtain safe abortions in the United States and abroad. Many folks who showed up here last Friday expressed confusion, surprise, and anxiety about being in a church for a call to action on the overturning of Roe. But according to the parable, this congregation is part of what grew out of the clergy consultation service, a place where folks could take shelter to get out of the high winds and to catch their breath. To be sure, it wasn't everything. But it was a seed. Do we believe it? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.